0: Thank you all for being here this morning, for praying for me as I study for this message here in Mark chapter 5, and as Kent has alluded, this is one powerful message. In fact, by way of introduction, I want to give you, give you a word, and you already know what the word is, so I'm not even going to explain it, it's power. What comes to mind, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word Power strength, okay? Others. Storm from last week. A mega storm from last week. Control. Others? Unstoppable. That's good. Any others? Electricity, is that what I heard? Well, that is one means of power. I, uh, I looked up the word in the dictionary, got a whole bunch of words, control, authority, influence, dominance, mastery, rule, command, supremacy, dominion, jurisdiction. If you, if you really study this word, you'll quickly find that it's used in two unique ways. The first is something like this, physical strength and force exerted by something. Some items that might fall under this definition will be things, things that are powerful, like, say, a jet engine. Recently, Barbara and I flew to Greenville, South Carolina, and every time I get on a jet, I just wait till we get to the end of the runway, and then I kind of prepare myself for this sense of force that's going to force me back in my seat. So that would be one means. Maybe you were thinking more like jet engines on a rocket, take a spacecraft out of the Earth's atmosphere. Or I thought maybe for you farmers, it's those huge, powerful tractors. Or maybe for those of you that go to Branson all the time, you see these signs, and maybe you've been there, a big Brutus. It was strip mining that was changed forever when this giant thing showed up, 160 feet high, weighing at a jaw-dropping 11 million pounds. It was the largest shovel in the world. So that's one aspect of power, physical strength and force exerted by something. But the second unique way this word is used is the capacity or ability of someone to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. Items falling into this category would be people oriented powerful people like the president of the United States or judges on the Supreme Court or maybe it's our governor or mayor or chief of police the CEO of a huge company or maybe it's even your boss at work who may not really be that powerful but thinks he is so so with those two definitions in mind the power of machines or the power of man I want to go to one other source for a definition, and that's the Bible. What does the Bible say about power? Well, depending on your translation, the word or word appears between 275 and 350 times in your translation. My Bible dictionary says this about the Greek word dunamis, which is translated power. And I'll read this to you. All power and all authority comes from God. God and is defined as God's strength and ability. Whenever we think of strength, we usually think of big machines or huge armies that have a ton of muscle. But God has the strength to crush all of them with the touch of his finger. He possesses the ability to do whatever he wants and can bring about whatever he pleases. Many times the Bible refers to power as his mighty hand, an outstretched arm, like in Deuteronomy 26.8, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great awesomeness and with signs and wonders, unquote. So given this biblical definition, how much power does God really have? Well, his power is limitless, for he is all-powerful. And the term we usually associate with this idea of God being all-power is omnipotent which is a Latin word meaning exactly that, all-powerful. Revelation 19.6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, "Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So what's, what's the point, you may be asking, of all this introductory introductory information regarding power, particularly God's power and Him being omnipotent. Well, as Christians, I don't think we have a true conception of God unless we think of Him as being the all-powerful God that He is. Yet, as we compare these definitions, the power of machines and the power of man, as compared to the power of God, it's an unfortunate but a true fact that most people are typically more impressed by the power of the first two than they ever are by the present evidences of God's limitless power. Whether it be the power of creation, the power in the virgin birth, his power over nature, his pardoning power, or his life-saving power, just to name a few, sadly, most individuals seem to ignore this kind of omnipotent power. They simply disregard it. So do you, ask yourself, do you have a true conception of this mighty power? First Chronicles 29 describes it well. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head of all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Today's passage is one of those demonstrations of God's limitless power as we look at the healing of the demoniac. So I called this passage simply the power of Christ. And I trust when you leave here today, you will sense this mighty power that God has. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. It's such an exciting passage as we see your power demonstrated. And I pray that you would keep each one alert and attentive And more importantly, Lord, that you would just help their hearts to be open. Open to what your truth says and how it speaks to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege it is to have your word. And thank you for the privilege it is to study your word as we do now. So just bless our time together. In Christ's name, amen. So I divided this chapter into, or these first 20 verses into three parts. The first one being verses 1 through 5. So follow along as I read that. And they came over into the other side of the seas, into the country of of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out to the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no Not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. I called this first section the problem of sin. As Kent talked last week, And James talked about this mega storm that the disciples went through. They saw Christ's overwhelming power in calming the winds and the seas. But now as they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee and step ashore in the country of the Gadarenes, or your Bible may call it the country of the Gerasenes, it's the same place. This is actually an area which most maps Label as the Decapolis. And I just wanted to briefly show you this. So they just have landed over here, and there are 10 cities marked here in red Damascus, I'll start from the top and work down Damascus, Canatha, Hippos, Dion, Rafana, Gadara, St. Paul, Pella, Gerasa, and Philadelphia. These will be mentioned later on in the chapter. But these are basically what they call the Decapolis. So there they land, and we see in verse 2, Mark's favorite word again, immediately. Immediately from when Christ got out of the ship, he was met with a man out of the tombs who had an unclean spirit. The parallel passage, if you were to study it in Luke 8, describes this man with one who had demons or more commonly known as the demoniac. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8 informs us there were actually two demoniacs. However, Mark apparently only focuses his attention on the most striking of the two. If the disciples were fearful of the violent storm they had just gone through, they were about to encounter something far more terrifying. If you remember, this isn't the first encounter with someone who had unclean spirit. We saw earlier in Mark chapter 1, this account, and we also will see it again when we come to Mark chapter 7. What does it mean to be a demoniac or to be demon-possessed? Not surprisingly, the subject of demon possession has always seemed somewhat remote and academic to most Americans living today. While it is true that Bible believing Christians have always accepted the fact of demons and their ability in New Testament times, many of us may be inclined to think of demonic activity in these days simply to pagan lands or missionary experiences. Yet, as one commentator stated, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall when it comes to demon possession one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and yet to not really be concerned or have any interest in them. Satan is equally pleased by both errors. And to that end, I would say that Satan's, or one of Satan's most effective instruments today is not like the account we'll be looking at here of the demoniac wandering around in desolate places for all people to see, but rather the subtle lies of Satan posing as an angel of light, Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says, "And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light." And through this deception, he loves nothing more to convince people that there is no God, there is no Satan, and therefore no heaven or hell to be concerned about in eternity. Or another deceptive tool used by him is giving a, a false assurance to those so-called moral and upright men and women in blinding them into thinking they're, they're good enough to go to heaven simply based on the works. The Bible says quite the opposite. For everyone who has not been made alive and come to a true saving dependence on the sole work of Jesus Christ on the cross is doomed for hell and therefore walking according to the prince of the air as found in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And because Satan is so subtle, even as a Christian who has been quickened, who has been made alive in Christ, God instructs even us about being deceived by the enemy as we are told to be on guard against the wiles of the devil. We are in a continual spiritual battle against Satan. Ephesians six ten and 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it is a fact that Satan would love nothing more than to destroy us. To as they talked to Peter, as to sift us like wheat. Therefore, we are to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom may be devour. I cannot stress the importance of heeding these clear warnings, for to ignore them could And will prove disastrous. Disastrous in your life. That's why all the elders exhort all of you you have to be in God's Word. You have to be. For the devil will deceive you. You have to put on the armor of God. And the only way you get that is through God's Word. So let's go back to our passage. What can we learn about this man with the unclean spirit? Verse 3, he was isolated. He dwelt among the tombs and therefore lived in the midst of the decaying and the dead. And Luke tells us that he lived this way a long time. Verses 3 and 4, he was violent. People sought to bind him with shackles and chains, but no man can tame him. Also in these same verses, he had supernatural strength. The demons so tormented him that when people tried to bind him, he would tear them off his hands and feet and break them up in pieces. And he was in constant suffering. Night and day, he would run about the mountains and the tombs. The passage in Luke tells us he wore no clothes, kind of like a wild animal. And he was also self-destructive, crying out, cutting himself with sharp stones, where he was in continual torment and pain. <clears throat> I'm sure anyone with earshot would have heard him crying out, and it would just be an, an awful experience to hear that anguish and hurt. I remember years ago when I was in college, I had to go in the hospital for a surgery, and I was put in a semi-private room. I don't know if they do that much nowadays, but there was another man right on the other side of me with a curtain separating us. I didn't find out until later what was wrong, but he was in severe pain. He cried out all the time. In fact, I stayed in that room for a few hours, and then I moved myself. I took my pillow and all my stuff, and I moved it out into the lobby, and I actually slept overnight in the lobby. I stayed after the whole time I was in the hospital. I don't think they would probably let you do that today, but they did then, just because I couldn't stand the crying and the suffering. Later, I got to know that man, but I won't go that way. So, anyway, the demoniac was truly suffering, and that's what really stuck with me as I end this first first section. For reminding me, that's really what hell's like. Matthew thirteen forty-two describes it, and they shall cast them into a furnace of fire there should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't know if any of you have ever been burned seriously. But the pain on a burn is so severe. I know if you're in the hospital and you get burned badly, they just put you kind of out. Because it's just the gnashing of teeth, the grinding. Uh, it's really the case. And that's, that's what hell is like. And yet the enemy does such a good job of blinding us of this very truth of what it's like. It will be extreme torment. But unlike a burn that heals, this goes on forever and ever and ever into eternity. I remember back in high school there was a best-selling book titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Let me assure you that was a myth then and it's a myth now. For none of us are okay why well without Christ there's no way we can say we're okay we were born with a problem and that problem will send us to hell and what is the problem the problem is sin and like the demoniac sin will plague you it will control you and it will certainly separate you from God The situation may seem hopeless, but there's a solution, and that's Christ, and so that's what we will find in this next section, which is verses 6 through 13, so follow along as I read that. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? God. I adjure you, or I, I implore you, God, that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much, that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there, was, now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave, or permission, and the unclean spirit went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. I call this second section the power of Christ. As we begin here, we see some very interesting things as we go verse by verse. Looking at verse 6, we learn that when the demon-possessed man saw Christ afar off, he ran and he worshipped him. The first point I see I would call true identity. While the disciples often struggled to understand and believe Christ's true identity, this demon recognized him immediately. James 2.19 confirms this. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Which leads me to the second point in verse 6 that of physical submission. The unclean spirit worshiped him, or a better translation would be he fell down before him. My Bible says in the footnotes he knelt or prostrated himself before Christ. Now, because demons are spiritual beings, you normally wouldn't be able to physically see this submission, but because they possessed the man physically, we literally can visualize this submission to power. And then verse 7, a verbal confession. We see the unclean spirit cried with a loud voice and acknowledged Christ as Jesus, thou son of the most high God. Most high is significant here, for this was the term used by the Gentiles to acknowledge the superiority of Israel's God. And then verse 7, the fear of punishment. The demon-possessed man now implores Christ not to torment him or punish him as he, or we learn, there's many of them, they, know Christ has authority and power to do exactly that for the evil that has been done to this man. One commentator stated, the demons considered it torment to be put out of this man's body. Demons want to inhabit human bodies for the same reasons a vandal wants a spray can For a violent man wants a gun. A human body is a weapon that a demon can use in attacking God. And then, from verse 8, we see obedience to Christ's command. For when Christ commands the unclean spirits to come out of the man, they immediately obey. Let me say, this is not a loving obedience, such as a believer renders to God but rather an obedience based on power from a sovereign God that cannot be rejected. Verse 9, their great number. Christ asked the unclean spirit, what is thy name? To which the response is, my name is Legion, for we are many. Theologians tell us that a Roman legion consisted of between four to 6,000 men. However, that doesn't necessarily mean there were that many demons within this man. But it does help us to understand what a horrific life this man had lived with so many demons within him. Also with the response of we are many, some commentators think this was said to give the appearance of strength and infer there's a lot of us. We are organized, we're unified, we're mighty, we're ready to fight. That type of thinking is really irrelevant when facing the mighty power of an omnipotent God. And that is why they quickly realize they need help, which leads me to verse 10. They go to begging and pleading. It was at this point that the legion of demons besought or begged Christ not to send them away out of the country. I thought that was a very unusual request. Um, Why not say, just send me over there? So I kind of dug on that. And uh, most say, that the demons were reluctant to leave this region of the Gadarenes because they found this place so fertile and hospitable. However, if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 8.31, it says, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep or the abyss. Abyss literally means bottomless. This made more sense to me and then I 'll explain why. In the New Testament in Revelation 9, it speaks of this abyss being the bottomless pit, a place where the unrighteous await final judgment, a place where there would be continual idleness. And that was the key word idleness. Could it be that these demons do not want idleness? One said, Lo, it is another hell to the devil to be idle rather than be evil occupied. I like what Spurgeon said. Satan would rather vex swine than do no mischief at all. He is so fond of evil that he would rather work it upon animals if he cannot work it upon men. So we learn in verses 11 and 12 that there was a herd of swine or pigs feeding nearby in the mountains. And at this point, the demons begged Christ to send them into the pigs. And that's exactly what happens in verse 13. Again, in Christ's power, he granted permission, and unclean spirits entered into them. I have to tell you, at this point in my study, I thought to myself, what if this was the end of the story? The demons possessed the pigs, the man was now free to move on in life. It would have been considered a great miracle. Demonstrating the power of Christ. But it didn't end there. That wasn't the end. But there's one more sentence that raises Christ and his power to an even greater level and propels several truths that we should take note of. That last sentence in verse 13, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked or drowned in the sea. Three points God really impressed upon me by way of application. First, the danger of demonic spirits. Christ wanted everyone to know, including you and I, the real intention of these demons. They will not sit idle, but they will make every attempt to destroy man, just as they destroyed these pigs. John 10.10, The thief, Satan, cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Christ... I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. It also confirms Ephesians 4.27 where it says, Neither give place or an opportunity to the devil for if you do, he will certainly take advantage. There was another translation I looked at for the word place or opportunity and it was foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. As I considered the danger of demonic spirits, I thought about this word foothold, which reminded me when my children were little, I used to play this game with them all the time. I was the mean dog. And I would chase them all over the house. And there was only one place that they could be safe. And I remember they would run into their room and try to slam the door and I would put my foot in the door. And no matter how hard they pushed, they could not get that door shut to me that's the kind of foothold if the devil can get his foot just his foot in your life but that can be so dangerous and that's why I said earlier we need to constantly be on guard and be diligent in this spiritual warfare as the footholds often start when there is idleness or a part of complacency. They say an idle heart is the devil's playground. And that can be so true if we're not taking every thought captive, as Second Corinthians ten five says. I don't know about you, but as I look around in this world, there is so much idleness. Even even plain laziness. Instead, we have to be diligent. Be diligent, be steadfast, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Don't. Secondly, the destruction of the pigs. As I looked at this in more detail, some of the more liberal commentators and what I would probably surmise as animal lovers, question why the Lord will allow the killing of two thousand pigs. The poor owners of these pigs probably lost everything they owned. So why would God do this? Well I don't know if I have an exact answer, but I do know there is really nothing that God does not own. If if you don't believe that, it's the truth. We are simply stewards to manage what God gives us. God owns a thousand, kills cattle on a thousand hills, and because he is sovereign, we can always trust his ways are perfect. That's why we're not to lay up for ourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth erupt, corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's It's a sobering question to ask yourself. Where's your treasure? Is it up there in the parking lot? Is it when you get home, your house? Is it your job? Is it your health? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then thirdly, The declaration of the power of God. I think this is why the pigs were destroyed, for the people who were there watching. The scene—the scene must have been terrifying to witness. If you've ever heard a frightened pig squeal, try to picture two thousand of them screaming in terror as they thrash around the water in the madness of drowning. Does this mean if there were 2,000 pigs, there were 2,000 demons? Possibly. Here's what I want you to visualize. First, the squealing, the terror, and then the silence as the last one sunk below the water. Silence for the evil that was present is now gone. God's power has now converted the distraught sinner into a child of his. And what a testimony of the power of Christ for the moaning of the man has now turned into rejoicing. And that brings us to our last section, verses 14 through 20. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray or to plead to him to depart out of their coast. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not but saith unto him go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the lord hath done for, the lord had done for thee and hath had compassion on thee and he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all men all men did marvel i call this last section the proclamation of the salvation it it didn't take long for word of what had happened to spread quickly. Verse 14 informs us that those that had been watching over and feeding the pigs fled and reported it far and wide throughout both city and country. Commentators concur that this would have taken place over several days, not just in an afternoon. So, given that, more and more people would continue to hear the report. In hearing the news, many from the surrounding area came out to investigate, which I believe would certainly have included the pigs' owners. What did they find? In verse 15, they found the demoniac sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Christ had completely restored this wreck of a human being. Then in verse 16, when the people began to piece together the previous events, not only the destruction of the pigs, but also the deliverance of the demoniac from this legion of demons, they began to sense that there was one far more awesome, much more to be feared than legion this one was Christ. However, this kind of fear didn't inspire a grateful respect and all that prompt, prompted heartfelt worship, but instead they shunned Christ like darkness upon light. And so in verse 17, they pleaded with him to leave the area. Here is one of the few times that a miracle drove people away rather than to draw them to Christ, which one author concluded, and I quote, The typical explanation for the petition of the residents that Christ leave their country is that they were motivated by materialistic consideration. In other words, Christ had caused a loss of them of 2,000 swine already. What else would his presence cost? Again, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? So we see in verse 18 that as Christ began to get back into the boat, the delivered demoniac pleaded with him that he might go with him. But verse 19 tells us that Christ refused this request and instead commissioned him to return to his own people and to proclaim to them of God's great compassion and what Christ had done for him. In other words, his greatest impact would be on those who knew his former state. And we can really take that to heart. Our greatest impact sometimes is on those who knew us before we knew Christ. And then, lastly, in verse twenty, which is such a fitting conclusion, the man did as Christ instructed. He immediately proclaimed his salvation to those in the Decapolis region, and all the people did marvel. The Greek word here is "mazo," meaning all the people were amazed at his testimony. And how true that is for those of us that know him. His salvation is amazing. As I close here today, there's something that I want you to do as you think about this whole story. And that is I want you to personalize it. To personalize it means I want you to see this demoniac as a representation of you. Me? Me? Yes, you. Every single one of you. Because in every respect, this story illustrates our own desperate spiritual condition before a holy God and the absolute necessity for each of us to be born again, to be utterly transformed by God's grace through a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be thinking, well, how can you say that? I'm certainly not some wild, demon-possessed maniac running around in graveyards, day and night. Oh, that that may be true, but the fact is, without Christ, we share in this man's deplorable condition. We may walk in this world in a culturally refined manner, but without a a regenerate work of Christ in our life and being born again, we are walking walking among the dead. And we are certainly doomed for an eternity in hell. The problem is sin and only Christ has the power to save. And it is only through this saving power that your sins will be washed away and like the demoniac, you can proclaim your salvation knowing you will now spend eternity in heaven with God. So I leave you with a final question. Do you know this great and amazing Savior? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this account this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your power. The power to save a lost soul like me. The power to regenerate a soul who is doomed for hell. Lord, we we are grateful. Forgive me, forgive all of us, Lord, when we take your power for granted. We take our salvation for granted. Lord, I pray for those here in this room who have never made a profession of faith, who have never desired to walk after you. Lord, help them see they are doomed for destruction. An Eternal fire, eternal torment, Lord, you can't even visualize it. It's so bad. Help them to see that their only hope is in Christ. Thank you for this account this morning. In Christ's name, amen.